Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. So everybody, welcome to our January Collective. Glad you're here today. It was just beautiful enough to be outside, a little bit of heat going there. And if the sun had poked out a little bit this morning, we would have been over out in that beautiful area over there. But we're really glad that you're here and uh, looking forward to um, what God has to for us from his word today. We just finished up, or in the process of finishing up, this will wrap up the first part of our our series at the beginning of the year on uh, Hebrew words that everyone should know. And we spent our time focused in on the Shema and some of the instructions that were found in there about listening. And if you remember, we've treated the Shema kind of like the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance, um, like the Jewish form of the Lord's Prayer. And um, as we come to this uh, final Sunday in the series, I wanted to get, um, I wanted to put before you a text um, that I think illustrates for us the three types of responses that we who are followers of Jesus could have in response to what we've learned, these commands that we've been given about listening and loving God with all of our heart, our soul, and our very. Remember, we learned that last week. And so I want us to turn in your Bibles, either electronic form or in print form, to Luke chapter 9. And it's probably a part of the Gospels that you're uh, familiar with. And uh, we're going to take a look at this story, this little bit of a story that Luke um, tells us about that um, I think illustrates for us exactly the kinds of responses that are available to us. And let me give you those responses because it's going to be kind of the foundation of what I want to share. Really, our response to what God asks of us in the Shema is we can say, no way. We can say, yes, but, or we could say, whatever you say. So can you say that with me? We could say, no way, yeah, but, or whatever you say. And we're going to see that, I think, illustrated today in Luke chapter 9. And just a little bit of of, um, background information. If you remember Luke's gospel, we love Luke's gospel here at the table because it seems as though in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either headed to, involved in, or has just left the table, a party, a meal of some sort. And in our text, it's going to talk about the fact that he is now on his way to Jerusalem. This idea of journey is what kind of drives Luke. He's showing this progressive journey as Jesus heads to Jerusalem that we'll be celebrating here in just about a month and a half. And he's on his way there for what reason? Is he going for a vacation? Why is he headed to Jerusalem? Really, you know the answer. This is not a trick question. He's on his way there, right, to be the perfect sacrifice on behalf of God for all of us. It's what makes the way for us to be made right with with God. And that's Luke's gospel. Oh, I'm sorry. Why was Jesus on his way to Jerusalem? Yeah, Luke's just following along, right? So he's on this journey. So in Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up the story beginning in verse 51. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51. You can listen along as I read from the Common English Bible, the CEB. An argument, excuse me, um, jump down to 51. As the time approached when Jesus was to be taken up into heaven, he determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of him. And along the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the Samaritan villagers refused to welcome him 
because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So he's on his way, right? He's going somewhere to Jerusalem to become the perfect sacrifice on our behalf for all of mankind. And he sends what we might call in today's political world an advance team, right? He sends out the advance team. Their job is to, I'm surmising, their job is to locate a place for him uh, where he can go and speak and people can be gathered around. Perhaps he sends them out to, uh, to make reservations at the local Marriott. Now, it's probably not going to be the Marriott, probably the local Motel 6 or something like that, right? They need a place to stay um, and a place for Jesus to, um, to speak to the people. Because at this time in his ministry, he's developed quite the following. So no matter where he goes, he really needs some preparation because if he just shows up, he could literally shut down a city. That's how popular he was at this time. And how did these people in this village, this unnamed village in Samaritan, how did they reply to Jesus, to this advanced team? What did they say? Yeah, no way. We don't want him here. And notice the reason they gave for we don't want him here. And we'll miss it if we don't pay attention to the context. They say we don't want him here because he is determined what? So why this conflict between Jerusalem and this city in Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans had set up a separate worship place, right? They believed that they were worshiping the one true God, Yahweh. And so the fact that Jesus was going to come there, but then pass his way through and go to Jerusalem was really for them kind of a slap in the face. Do you understand that? In other words, he's not coming here. This is where true worship happens. He's going to go back to Jerusalem, that place where all of these rebels are, and you get the idea. So they said, hey, if you're not in it for us here now, no way, we're not interested in you. What I find um, amazing is the response then that follows from his disciples. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, some of you who have the CEB, how many of you have CB? Just raise your hand if you have a CB and you have it open. All right, so someone, I need two, I need three people. Give me three volunteers. You're all doing the same thing. Three volunteers. Come on. All right, one, nine. You got nine, verse 54. Nine, verse 54. I'll get one over here. Nine, verse... Yeah, nine, verse 54. We'll get you in a minute. All right, so nine, verse 54. Now, you are... Your job, your task is to convey this response as convincingly as you possibly can to all of us who are listening, okay? Don't, don't look, just listen, right? 9.54, who wants to start? You start the most convincing manner possible. Remember, they sent the advance team, they said, no way, and here's what the disciples want to know if this is good with Jesus. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe you could do a better job of convincing us. Lord, them. <laughs> Getting a little more. All right, Lee. Uh, come on, brother. Do I'll, I'll do the, do the Lord, do you want us to call, down, call fire down from heaven to consume that? Anybody else want to try? Yeah, you want to try? Yeah, I got it. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to consume them? Ah, now I'm convinced. Winner, winner. All right, one more. All right, here we go. Lord, do you want us to call? <laughs> to consume them? 
isn't that one of the greatest, isn't that one of the greatest sentences in all of the Gospels? It's like, hey, send out the advance team. Hey, we're coming. No way. We don't want you. All right. Um, let's see if we can get, and by the way, notice, it wasn't, um, Jesus, could you um, maybe help us out here and call down fire from heaven? Notice, what did they say? Uh, do you want us to? Like, okay, son of God. <laughs> Just step out of the way a little bit here. Let us handle this one, right? Those people, let us handle this one. Um, just make sure, are you cool if we just like call down fire from heaven? As if they could make that happen, right? Oh my goodness, were they ever feeling themselves? And it's like total indignation to the point of absurdity, right? Um, I can just see Jesus rolling his eyes, can't you? Just like, no, I could see Jesus maybe doing something like, really? Don't you think that might be just a slight overreaction to the fact that they really don't want us here? I wish, don't you wish with me, that um, someone could have been there to take notes on the response of the disciples when Jesus, because it just says that, and Jesus basically just says, and he rebuked them. He was just like, hey, yeah, yeah, settle down, settle down, right? I wish someone could have been there to take notes on that. Yeah, really? Yeah, exactly. Does that tell us, by the way, does that tell us anything um, about those closest to Jesus now that they've been traveling with him for a number of years? Does that tell us anything about them? They're human. They're human. I like that, that they're human. What else? Earlier in the chapter, he sent them all out to do healings and miracles. And they failed, didn't they? Didn't they come back and said, we couldn't do it? Isn't that what it says? And now they've said, oh, well, we can't, we can't do this little healing, but we could call down fire from heaven if you just give us permission. Yet they just had a conversation about who was the greatest yeah. among them. Right. And so I would envision that they would have a contest to see who would be able to call down fire from heaven. And then they would get the head of the table. I mean, we can, but this is the reason that I love stories, gospel stories, because it opens, this is semiotics. What you guys are doing is, Semiotics. We're just, we're reading the story and we're going, oh, wow, that must be what it's like. And I wonder what it would have liked to be there. And I wonder if there were any of the disciples sitting there going, um, you don't speak for me, buddy. Whoever it was who, who decided to, um, to tell, ask Jesus if they could do that. Um, I think it, it, at nothing else, it tells us that they're humans. Um, it certainly tells me that they still quite don't get what's happening here and what's going on and um, that they're still on that journey with Jesus. They're still learning. But notice that Jesus doesn't like um, have the response I might have had, which is like, okay, so let's imagine I was here and, we, and I said to you, all right, let's go ask the people at the Mill Street house if, um, if they would let us uh, use this place for an Easter gathering and y'all went out and some of you representatives went out and you came back and said, no, we'd rather you not, you know, use it for Easter. And your response was, um, God, can we call down fire to consume that building because they don't want us there? Um, I would probably say, you know what? Um, this congregation's probably not quite your speed. You might want to think of a place that's a little bit more fire and brimstone because that's not us or something like that, right? I'd kind of be like distancing myself, but Jesus doesn't do it. Just says he rebuked them and... They went on their way. Why does he just push past that? Why doesn't he respond? I thought about it, and I actually think it makes sense if we understand Jesus. Because he's the same now as he was back then. He will not and does not force himself anywhere and on anyone who's not interested. 
And all of our attempts to try to do that as well will fall short. So this first group of people said, yeah, we're not interested. No way. But there's a second group of people, the yes butters, I'll call them, the yes butters. And they have a motto. It um, goes like this. Yet, uh, yes, but this, or yes, but that. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Um, and we pick that up in uh, verse 57. So now in verse 57, um, as Jesus and his disciples traveled along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nests. But the human one, that's Luke's favorite word for the humanity of Jesus, has no place to lay his head. Then Jesus said to someone else, follow me. He replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of God's kingdom. Don't each one of these people have a seemingly reasonable request? I mean, think about it. Take a look at that again. Don't they have a reasonable request? I mean, remember now, we're, when Jesus says, follow me in that day and time as a rabbi, right? That's a big honor. Your task was then to leave a big sacrifice too. You leave your family. You know, Peter and many of the other disciples likely married with children, like they're disappearing from their family. It's a big commitment. It's an honor for sure, but a big commitment to be gone for three years. And all of they do in response to this idea of follow after me is they say yes, but they qualify it with a but, a condition, a but. Don't they seem reasonable to you? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I got to bury, right? What was one of them? I got to bury. Bury my father. Yeah, I got to bury my father. What's the other one? Yeah, I've got to say goodbye to my family. All of these, they all seem like, to me, very reasonable requests. Yeah, it's like, yeah, in the big scheme of things, right? An extra day or maybe in the case of a burial a week, something like that, right? Shouldn't make that big of a difference, right? He said yes, but, and doesn't the response of Jesus, responses, I should say, of Jesus seem, I don't know, can I say it? Totally unreasonable? I mean, think about it. Well, he knew what was coming down the pike for him. Sure. And there was no... I mean, if his plan was going to take place, which it was obviously, then these had to be fully devoted, no exceptions, right. no reason to quit. Yeah. So, yeah, anticipating that, right, right. certainly, that no, he, he knowing what the future was going to hold and that if there was any kind of waffling at all, as soon as those difficult times came, they would be the first ones to disappear. And by the way, um, they did that. Right, we know that. Right, we, they did that anyway, despite all of that. Um, it's interesting that um, if we go to Matthew chapter eight, if you want to flip over there to Matthew chapter uh, eight, it's the parallel story here. I um, mean, in Matthew chapter eight, verses eighteen to twenty-two, we get one more detail um, about this particular story and who's involved in it. If we pick up in eight, Matthew chapter eight, in verse eighteen. Here's Matthew's account. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd, he ordered his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. A legal expert came to him and said, 
Teacher, I'll follow you wherever I go. And then Jesus replied, foxes have dens, same response, right? And the birds um, and the birds in the sky have nests, but the human one has no place to lay his head. And another one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What new detail has been um, revealed to us in Matthew's account? The first guy was a legal expert. The second guy was one of Jesus' disciples. So we're talking about these aren't peripheral people that have been just kind of around. I mean, you've got serious, you know, the, the, the teacher of the law. These are serious followers. I mean, these are people who took the Shema seriously, right? They're the ones who are praying it at least three times a day. They know exactly what's being asked of them. And Matthew identifies it. It sounds almost like it's an, enthu- an enthusiastic um, volunteer. Like, sure, I'm ready to go. Um, and basically, Jesus' response to him is, are you sure about that? Because if you have to go behind and you're not really sure, then are you, willing, are you going to be willing to, willing to stay with me? And the fact that we're going from place to place, town to town, Motel 6 to Motel 6, um, are you in for that game? I have a question. Sure. Would the legal expert be a Pharisee? Yes. So that's another term for the Pharisee. Luke uses that often. Could be ascribed. Technically, it could be ascribed to... I would think that's the implication that I would, if, if not following him, his his rapport, I mean, he's taken over Judea and Samaria at this point. I mean, he's, he's a rock star, rabbi, if you want to call it that, by this point. So he's obviously heard about him, known about him, and he's, you know, enthusiastically say, hey, I'm going to follow you anywhere. And really what God is asking, what Jesus is asking on behalf of God his Father is basically a rephrasing of the Shema again. He's basically saying, you've got to come to the point, and later on he says it, right? You have to, you know, take up your cross daily and follow me. You've got to come to a point where you don't worry about anything else except total and complete followership and obedience to me. And if you do that, that initial response we have to following after Jesus, it it uh, sets off an amazing chain reaction, right? In that moment, when we say we're willing to follow, our sins are forgiven, our name is written into the book of life, we become children of God, um, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and all of these things are added. The Spirit fills us, it empowers us, and that decision initially will change the total direction of your life, and then Jesus counterbalances with that. And remember, it says, even though that's happened and you've received all of these things, there's still a cost of discipleship, of being yoked together with me, of following after me, of actually listening, which we know means to obey as well. And that's why he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. This idea of devotion and full, uh, full and total devotion to God is never ever portrayed by Jesus or anywhere in scripture as a once-for-all deal. It's always a daily decision. Hence the reason why the Shema is morning, noon, and night prayer. So the legal expert considered the cost too great, and he chose not to follow. The second man, Jesus says, follow me. And what's his response? He says, yeah, but I have to first go and bury my father. I mean, does that not seem shocking to you? Isn't that like a, that's like a big commitment in, in Judaism or anywhere, right? Like someone in your family dies, 
Like, that's a really big commitment. So why do you think Jesus would respond in a way like that? Let, let somebody else go, let the dead bury their dead. Let, let someone who's not interested, you, you don't worry about that. Why? Why would he say something like that? Doesn't it seem like callous, if at the least, and just downright mean? What do you think? Maybe because he knew time was short. Possibly. Thinking the time is short, okay. Jesus knows what's coming and time is short. Okay. Okay. So it's, yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting that you say that because that's really when we, and we'll, we'll kind of, I'll kind of sum it up for you. That's really what had happened. That's really what had transcribed or, or transpired in the religious, the elite religious circles of the day. They kind of taken that responsibility of their family and used it as an excuse to why they couldn't be fully committed to something because, you know what, if I'm over here, and my dad does die, right? Now I have this responsibility. So, you know what? I'm just going to wait until that's done. So the idea that it's like, okay, he's dead and just leave his body there and take off with me. Although we could read it that way, and I'm sure that's always a possibility. The reality is in the day and time of Jesus, he knew, Jesus knew that that was a yeah, but excuse. I'll do it, but wait till it's more convenient for me. In other words, once I've gotten the money that I need, right? Because I don't want to tick off my, my parents leaving here because there's my inheritance. You know what I'm saying? All of that language, I think, is uh, potentially in there. And he knew, I think, deep down inside that he really wasn't caring for his father. He just knew that it was one of those yeah, but things, right? Yeah, but, and of course he said, in response to Jesus' response, he was like, he was gone. And then the third guy makes another, I would say, arguably perfectly reasonable request of going home to say goodbye to his family. Now, can you imagine like taking off for a number of years uh, without explaining to your family where you're going or, or what's happening? I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like, even in that day and time, just disappearing and following after without going back? Um, to me, that sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? In fact, I would argue for you that if you remember, there's a little, it's not a little known story, it's actually a pretty big story in, in Hebrew history. This guy, smart maybe as he is, I don't know, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but he actually has the Hebrew scriptures on his side. Because if you remember, some of you may remember the story, that when Elijah was preparing to be caught up into heaven and pass on his prophecy his prophetic role to Elisha remember he comes and David preached on this a number of years ago if some of you were here remember he he takes off his cloak he walks up to Elisha who's plowing in the field takes off his cloak lays it over him and says by basically saying you're the next prophet in this line right and of course Elisha is stunned he's out there you know working in the field to which his response was yes but let me go home Tell my parents what's going on. Let them know that I'm going to be the next in this thing and let them know what's going on and then I'll do it. And does anybody know what Elijah's response was? Okay. Yep, okay, makes sense. Go do that and then I'll meet you right here and we'll go. So he has a story on his, he's like, hey, I just need to let my family go. He had it on his side. Didn't bother Elijah. Why do you think it bothered Potentially Jesus. 
shaman to a prophet like you. It, it, the shaman would not be the same to a prophet as it would be to Jesus. Okay. What's the underlying potential challenge that Jesus might be identifying? Think about it for a minute. There's not maybe a full trust going on? It's possible, yeah, that there's not a total, not a total trust, maybe distraction. The potential of that, yeah, of, of being coerced to stay. If you're not ready now, you're never going to be ready. Could be something along those if you're not ready now. Possible. I love the way um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's one of my favorite guys to read. If you don't know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you should go and look it up. Uh, during the Second World War, he was a German um, uh, uh, Lutheran pastor who's, who originally was part of the plan to, to take out Hitler in a back backdoor scheme and was put in prison and he writes a series of letters and when he writes about this story this is what he says although the would-be disciple places himself at the master's disposal at the same time he insists on retaining the right to dictate his own terms but then discipleship is no longer discipleship but a program to uh, to uh, a program of our own to suit ourselves Discipleship can tolerate no condition which might come between Jesus and our obedience to him. Do you see what he's saying there? It's like this idea of, yeah, but I still want to be in control and in charge of when and how that's going to happen. And so I'm going to go home, say goodbye to my family, and then when, it, when the time's right, I will come. I'm going to set the agenda. And Jesus knows from the beginning, anytime we're sitting there going to set the agenda for what our discipleship is going to be like, we're setting ourselves up for failure, right? You're not shamaying when you're setting the tones and dictating the, uh, the terms of your relationship, right? That's not the way it worked. So notice all three of our yeah butters have seemingly excellent reasons to resist. And yet what, what do we find? Jesus has the same response to all of them. Your yes but gets you a don't bother. Because he's not interested in our excuses. In fact, my grandfather used to say all the time, and some of you know I'm profoundly influenced by my grandfather's, uh, my spiritual walk on my grandfather's influence, and he used to tell me all the time, he would say, an excuse is a lie disguised as a reason. Yeah, you can write that one down. It's that good. Yeah, an excuse is a lie disguised as a reason. And Jesus no longer was talking about what they believed but the way that they were going to live their lives, the way that we are going to live their lives. These are, are people who say they want to follow, but flat out what, won't do what he's asking them to do. And Jesus is saying, I don't care what you say or what you do, your actions are going to speak loudly. Will you follow? Will you do as I command? And um, I would suggest we have our own yeah buts, sadly. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be a spiritual example to my kids, but... You don't know the pressure I have in my life. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be completely faithful to my covenant marital vows, but you don't know my spouse. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to have an exemplary work ethic, but you don't know my mean boss. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to love other people unconditionally, but you don't know all the things they've done to me. And the list goes on and on, doesn't it? And God's response is the same. Guess what? God's not interested in our yes buts. He's only interested in our complete obedience and trust. 
And that's the difference between casual followership and devoted followership. Casual follower is willing to give God a little bit of their lives, perhaps out of, maybe I'll use the word guilt, but out of some sense of responsibility and then a bunch of excuses for all the things that God has asked of them and why that seems unreasonable. And God is not reasonable always in the way of our human understanding. He's not asking us for, he's not asking to, for us to reason with him. He's asking simply for our obedience. Now, I told you there were three types of people. We've heard from the no ways, right? We've heard from the yeah butters, and both of them got similar responses from Jesus. Basically, goodbye. But then there was the third time, I promised you. The third type, the whatever you say, folks. Who are they? Who are these people, these great and powerful people who understand the deep mysteries of spirituality and God? Right? Where are they? Where could we locate them in that story? So let's go back and look. Okay, Luke chapter 9. Let's go back. We see this. We got the, the no yes, and we got the yes butters. Uh, are, they, are they not in there? Here's my point. I think if we read the story in the way that I think it was intended for us to read it, we go back and we focus again on those disciples. The ones whose original response was, let's call down fire from heaven. We've already seen that, right? No, John, don't go there. Or maybe it was James. Quit playing with the matches. No, it's not that. (laughs) Proof again, they were totally clueless as to what Jesus was all about. In fact, if you carry the story forward and you read all of the Gospels, you discover that this is just one of many of these kind of outrageous and bizarre responses from his disciples. And it begs the question, why on earth would Jesus? Why would he keep those people? Why would he be patient enough with his disciples to keep letting them stay with him, even in the midst of the fact that they come up with the craziest responses? You kind of have to know the end of the story to realize that eventually, slowly but surely, with an open heart, they learned to say, whatever you say, Jesus, whatever you say. It took a long time. It took literally the death of their Messiah and then a recalling of them for them to become the ones who are, yes, whatever you say, Lord. Because if you go back and you look, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the foundation of the church. We know about Peter. We know about what happened to some of the other disciples who went to Ethiopia and places all around the globe. Each one of them, literally, except for John, who goes on, by the way, to write this gospel and three other epistles, plus the book of Revelation, all of them, demonstrated through their life, they, through, ultimately through their life, that they were anything you say because they gave up their life for the master. They were martyred for the cause of Christ. They are our example of anything that you say because they then turned the world upside down for Christ because they were willing to respond in that way, whatever you say, Jesus. So it begs the question as we wrap up our time, who are you in the story? Right? That's what these stories are about. Identify yourself in the story. Perhaps you're a no-way, or I hope not. 
the no-wayers are the folks who are just saying, I want nothing to do with you, Jesus. I think by the fact that you're here this morning, you're saying, that's not me. But I would say that there are many of us here today that are maybe still, there's a part of us that are still yes-butters. There are all these reasons why I can't be a fully devoted follower. Yes, God, if you could just wait a little bit longer, um, I can, I'll, I'll become that devoted follower. Yes, God, if you're... Um, if you'll just wait for me to become just a little bit more comfortable in this area of giving or whatever that area is. Yes, God, but, yes, God, but. Here's the challenge. Saying yes, but to God doesn't work. And I am a perfect example of someone who's tried it over and over again, and I suspect I'm not alone. Jesus will go on his journey without us. It doesn't have to look like that, though. The choice is ours to make, and it's a daily choice that we make, just like every one of those ancient followers who recited the Shema day after day. Every time we say that and make that commitment, it is a daily devotion that we make to follow Christ. Obedience and trust or doubt or excuses, which one will it be? Let's pray together. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.